what a blessing, a privilege it is to be part of a family. And we're going to learn a little bit about that in the text we have this morning. So if you would turn your Bible open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we get to be in God's Word together, which is a great privilege. And if you don't know where that's found, there's Bibles provided for you in front, and you'll find it on page 992 or thereabouts. Or if that's wrong, you could turn to your neighbor and ask him, would you please help me? I need to find 1 Timothy chapter 3. And that's fine. People will not think less of you. Um, We're just privileged to look into God's Word together. The Lord has freely given us uh, so much to be thankful for. And amongst all the other things, it's this great privilege that we get to share. That because of His great grace, those of us who have chosen to enter into relationship with Him by faith have chosen to trust Jesus with our life and are following Him. Um, He has blessed us to be part of a family. Now, if you have yet to make that choice, we want to say how thankful we are that you're here and you're exploring. And if you have questions, feel free to ask them or the person that you brought or, or someone here would love to get in that kind of dialogue with you because we embrace those kind of discussions about faith and questions and doubt. And, and we love to point people to how to have a great relationship with the Lord. But one of the great blessings, of course, is that those of us who have chosen to follow the Lord not only are part of this family, but we have Christ on display in us. That's the promise of God's word. Now, here's the deal. Do you see this great graphic that Jenny made? Fantastic job, Jenny, by the way. I, I was thinking about it this morning, and I was thinking um, in the process of our series, it would have been really cool for us to actually to make the Christ portion bigger and bigger and bigger, because that's his agenda in our lives together, that that me part gets smaller And the Christ part gets a lot bigger. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to have actually Christ display in the life of this family, of this church? How do we behave in God's home and his family? And what is this mystery of Christ on display that that Paul alludes to here in 1 Timothy chapter 3? As we read 1 Timothy chapter 3 together, let me just say this as we get into it. That for those of you who are students of God's word, that you've been in and you've studied this, and you might have heard 15 different messages on this particular passage, and so you've done all the exegesis. You've, you know this passage down cold, and you believe that it's, it's almost exclusively about church leaders. Let me dispel you of that myth. It's really not just about church leaders or those who would serve in the role of the church. It really is about all of us. You're going to hear a list as we get into God's word of character expectations, of attributes. And they are first addressed to those people who have the role of overseer or in our context as an elder. And then it will give a list about deacons, those people who serve in all kinds of really great ways. We have this wonderful deacon team here. And you'll see the list of, of character qualities for them too. But those simply are intended, I believe, by Paul and by the Spirit of God for us to see as models for all of us because all of us are intended to enter into the holy life, to enter into the joy and the experience of having Christ on display in us and changing our lives and moving us to be like him. These expectations are for those who people see so that they might model Christ, they might see Christ in their lives. Does that make sense? And let me say this, one of the most humbling and sobering things that a person who invests in kids experiences, whether that's your role as a parent or a grandparent or a teacher 
or someone who works in our children's ministry department, whatever that role might be, just an aunt, an uncle, is when they start imitating you, isn't it? Doesn't that scare you? The first time I discovered that as a parent, I thought, oh, my kids are wrecked, you know, forever. They're saying stuff that I say or behaving like me that I, and it's just humbling. It's hard because you know you've got this list of things, bad habits and flaws and shortcomings and mistakes in your life. And you say things you wish you hadn't said, and now they're saying them, and you're seeing people imitate you. And when we see this list that we're about to enter into, it's an expectation list, and that can be humbling for us, just like it is humbling for us to enter into being an influence in other people's lives. We can also see that sometimes in those great moments, those same kids that we're influencing they will start to take on things that we value, things that like a, a touch of generosity that might have flowed out of us in a moment or how we navigated particular challenges for us. They looked at us and hopefully they're seeing character displayed in us, the character of Christ displayed in us, and that that would be magnified and would magnify Christ. And so this passage is like this. It's a model for family life together. For all of us to have this kind of character and share it together and so encourage and sharpen one another. And so that the world might see what a Christ follower looks like. So let's look at the text. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the word of God to us this morning. So let's treat it like it is. The saying is trustworthy. Verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and all of their households well. For those who serve as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Now, 1 Timothy 3 has these three distinct parts. Did you see them? The first part zeroes in on overseers or elders, other contexts, maybe called bishops. They are those who step into leadership roles in the church family. And the second 
is for those who are deacons, those who serve the practical needs of the body. And did you notice that the qualifications sound very much alike? Right? They, they sound very similar because there's a lot of overlap that happens here. And also notice that Paul doesn't spend much of his time on a detailed job description for what this ought to look like in every church setting. Instead, he focuses in on what? A matter of character. It's not to say that giftings and skill aren't really important. They are really important to every place, every role that you fulfill in the family of Christ here in the body. Um, those are significant. And Paul gets into that discussion in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. But here he's focusing on the essential thing for those people that are in the church family. It's something that really matters. It's our character. Because character is the evidence of Christ on display in our lives. Character is the evidence of Christ doing his great, holy, grace-filled work inside of me, changing me, and changing the people next to you so that we look more like him. And it's the fruit of the Spirit and his work in us, the product of what we talked about last week in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that is becoming a person of prayer. Prayer changes us, remember that? And as it does, it changes us into people who put Christ on display in our lives. Now, before we go any further, let me address the, a few of the elephants that might have been in the room as you read this text. In Paul's description of both the overseer and deacon, he uses language that should make thoughtful, considerate people pause and probably feel pretty inadequate. And I say, I don't, I don't know anybody who's um, stepped into leadership in a, the church family that really is walking with the Lord and tender toward him that isn't completely humbled by this list. And feeling like, wow, that, I, I don't qualify. Right? Anybody here feel like they're totally qualified? It's, it's very humbling, this list, because it's a list that speaks of being above reproach and blameless. Like, who's perfect among us? And yet, he speaks specifically about these character traits as if God could actually do that in us. He could help us become above reproach and be live blameless. In another part of Scripture, 1 Peter 1.15, it says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That's an expectation for us. It's actually good to be holy. It's right for us to want to be more like Christ and to, to grow in that, to mature in that. And so Paul puts these character expectations in front of us, and rightfully so. Even though they feel disqualifying, especially for those of us attuned to our sinfulness, our brokenness, our depravity, how far we fall short of God's standards, it can feel defeating and disqualifying. And for those of you who have never stepped into serving because you feel like you're not qualified, let me say this great reminder from Scripture Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't live under condemnation and feel it disqualifies you from serving. That's not the point. This is a list of character traits that raises the bar for all of us to live holy, to live right, to live in ways that people see Christ in us. And so, don't live under condemnation because we have the hope of Christ in us 
doing his good and holy work to make him make us like himself. He's making us like himself. And that's good. That's his work. That's his good and grace-filled work. For other of us, others of us, there are some sneaky lies that can seep into our thinking. We can believe that somehow we're worthy to be leaders. That yeah, you know what? I, I don't have the whole list down, but yeah, I actually am pretty worthy to be able to be a leader in the body. Can I just say that's messed up? That's so wrong. The, the truth is none of us are. All of our worthiness is in Christ our Lord. It's, it's not in us at all. And so don't ever slip into that kind of thinking or to think, yeah, I've, I've got holiness down about 97%. All right, that's, that's not holy. That's not being absolutely holy. God still needs to be at work in us. We still fail miserably. And the point, I believe, one of the points of Paul laying this list in front of us is so that we would come into complete reliance that God's got to do the work or else I'm hosed. God's got to do the work or it's going to affect the whole family in really negative ways. He's got to be making me like himself. And so I pray that way and I seek that way. I look to others to sharpen me, to help me grow in that. Brothers and sisters, these these character traits, they're not about bringing defeat to your life or discouragement to your life, but rather they're about bringing spiritual wholeness and health. The way we speak, Paul is saying, and the quality and the purity of our relationships, the way we invest our resources for the kingdom of God, our freedom from substance abuse, the spiritual and the holistic health of our families, they're all very important matters. And so Paul lists them here in both those sections, the one on overseers and on deacons, for us to see and to be reminded of because they're important matters that affect us, they affect people around us, they affect our church family life, and they infect people outside who look at the church and think about who Christ is when they see us. The Lord uses us to reflect himself through these character traits. Now notice also that the word emphasizes the necessity for leaders to exhibit spiritual maturity. It says we can't be just brand new believers and hop in. Now there's something great about people who just come to faith. They're contagious with their witness, isn't it? It's so great. It's such a great model for me when I see a new believer step into faith and see how great they are at sharing with their friends. And I'm always convicted by that and challenged by that. But there's a reminder here for those that would step into these roles that they need to have some seasoning in their lives. They need to have grown to be dependent on the Lord and His Spirit and to be reminded of how easy it is to fail and to fall. They need to understand their own frailty and the Lord's power and have life experiences to help sharpen them and mature them. The Lord uses these experiences to refine us. Can I say just a word about this? Um, It's a word to those of us um, who are young in the faith and who are young at life. And really, I believe it's a word to all of us about what God does through our life experiences to season us for places of service in the body. Sometimes life hurts. Amen to that, huh? Sometimes that hurt never goes away. And I can't promise you a circle of friends that you're going to have or a friend that's going to last throughout a lifetime. I can't promise you a godly spouse or even that you'll get married at all. 
I can't promise you children. I can't promise you a cushy job. I can't promise that you'll be protected from illness, whether that be physical or mental illness. Some of you will be vulnerable to addictions your entire life, whether substance or sexual or unhealthy attitudes. Some of you will be taken advantage of by others. And life will seem unfair. It's possible in the middle of all that suffering that God has something for you. In fact, I know he does because God never wastes any of our experiences. He's a father who gives gives good gifts and fosters growth and refines us, his children, in giving his gifts. Perhaps he knows your forgetful heart, how easy it is to forget to rely on him. And you need persistent reminders to look to him instead of looking to your own achievements or your own paycheck or all your accomplishments. Perhaps he's trying to refine someone around you as they look at your experience, as you walk through them as a godly person and they see Christ in you. These things in life that season us, they draw out the grit in our faith. And if we choose to suffer well, he will refine us and get us to a place where we're fit to serve and to lead the family of faith. So these instructions for us and for those who serve in service roles and in leadership roles, they're to be example of God living for who? For all of us, for every one of us. And they're therefore significantly important. And we can't disconnect them from the latter part of the chapter, which often happens. And I want to focus our attention on those final verses, the time we have remaining Verses 14 through 16. Can I remind you of them again? I hope to come to you soon, Paul writes, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. By the way, Timothy didn't return. He was delayed and did not get back to him, and so he wrote 2 Timothy. But this is so that we might know how to behave with each other in the family here, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So Paul anchors the instructions on purity or the priority of character for overseers and deacons in this wonderful picture of the church, what the the church is like, and the person of Jesus, what he's like. And he explains why all the details of the local church life together and the character traits of its leaders are so important. And he's going to give us two reasons in this passage. The first reason is what the church is. That's the first reason he gives. And the second reason is because of who the Savior of the church is. Paul's going to tell us here that there is a reason why we ought to strive to live in a way that brings glory and honor to God. And it's because God has made the church to be this, to be his family. And if we would realize this, if we would realize why we need to strive to live together in family life in a healthy way, our ministry would be effective. Then he tells us that the only way we're going to be able to live this way, to live the way that God has designed us to live, is if we see who the Savior is. If, 
if we're going to measure up to the character traits that God wants to infuse in us, we are going to do that with sober consideration about the glory of our Savior, with whom we're united in faith. Now, the New Testament, it defines church in a really interesting way. When I was a young kid, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't know what church was. I know that we went there all the time. But I can remember one day um, asking the question in my little children's ministry class, you know, my Sunday school class. And uh, the teacher had this brilliant illustration. Some of you have heard this illustration before, seen it, right? It's a physical illustration. So it starts this way. Take both hands. Take both hands. This is the interactive portion of the message. And stick your fingers together. You know where I'm going with this, some of you? Okay, so you close it. And they said, this is the church. This is the steeple. Look in the door and see all people. The problem was the illustration was horrible. It was wrong. What's wrong with that illustration? This is not the church. This is the church, right? The church is not the building. When people walk, drive by Driscoll and take a look at bridges at the building here, that's not bridges. It's where bridges comes, but this is bridges. The people are the church, the household of God. And the New Testament always defines church as consisting of people who have been born by the Spirit of God and have entered into new life in Him because of Christ in them, Jesus on display. That's the church. I think in our day, in our culture, people have gotten so confused about what church is. They think of buildings or they think of institutions or the individuals, people who stand up. But church is us as the family of God, united. When Christians got together in the first century, it was always a choice and a valued experience. And you can't read the book of Acts without seeing how much they loved to get together. They anticipated it. And what God did when they were together, how they shared life in small groups and large groups and whenever and wherever they could because such gatherings brought fresh wind to them to be able to live in a hard environment of persecution and struggle where most people didn't believe. Sound familiar? So we come together as the family and we enjoy family life. This, Paul says, is the household of God filled with his people. That's what defines us as the church. And yet in our day and age, we've largely lost consciousness of what it means to be the family of God, the household, the the gathered people of God together. And so let me just take a step back and encourage your thinking about the church, why it matters that we're here together. What's so good about this place? It's not how many people attend. It's how God is doing a great work with us, the gathered people, and who we are. The temple and the tabernacle in the Old Testament are both called the house of God. But it was made clear even in the beginning that these were only symbols. When they finally finished the the really beautiful and one of the great beauties of the world was the temple. When Solomon finally finished the temple in Jerusalem, he leads his people in prayer for it to dedicate it. And he says in his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
I just made a building. I didn't made something that contained you. How much less this house that I have built. Though God filled the temple with symbols of his presence, nevertheless, it was just a symbol of the house. And think about this, how impressive it must have been if you would have been living in the time where the people of Israel were wandering around in the wilderness and you came up over a rise and you saw them, over two million people gathered. And amidst amidst all the tents and all the people, in the middle of the very center of their gathering was the tabernacle, this tent that symbolized the presence of God. And as you took a look, you saw this holy glory, this mysterious great radiance. A cloud was over it that flashed fire by night. And it drove people to the sense of awe and wonder what this was all about. And yet, according to the Bible, that was just a symbol of the true house. Because in Hebrews chapter 3 in the New Testament, we're told that that was just an example. But Christ serves as a son in his house. And then comes these really amazing words in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. We are his house. That's us. How cool is that? That the, the body is us. We are the household of God. We're human beings. Yes, failed and frail and so easily offending one another. But we're the family. And Christ lives in us. And God lives in us. And that's why in the middle of a confused and hurting, struggling world that we find ourselves in, this place, the church, is where God is at work and where he's displayed and where people should be looking to. And that's why when we gather together in places small or great, like this gathering this morning, or in your life group later on this week, especially when we set aside time for worship and learning from the Lord who lives within us, we ought to do so with hearts that just marvel or revel in this great truth. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't forget me. Nor will he ever do that. He doesn't see us as just an object in a great army. You are his child. You're a valued part of this family. I hope you, I hope you know that, experience that, how deeply you're valued here as part of this family together, every one of us. And the church must live that out. They must see us be a family, the household of God, the living God. Paul describes the role of the church, and he uses two dramatic words in this text. The church is the pillar and the buttress of truth. The great reason for the existence of the church is not to generate bigger buildings or to be impressive in other ways but it's to introduce truth back into a world that's saturated with error and confusion. A world that follows all kinds of different people and parades around all kinds of different expressions of what they think is true. The church has the truth. And we are those who are pillars that should be standing in our culture and helping people with grace understand it. We don't hit people over the head with truth, but we use and live out truth so that our culture, the people around us, can understand it and enter into it. We live in this messed up world. It's getting more confused all the time, right? But the church is called to speak out and to live out truth in front of people. That's you, by the way, the church. It's not an organization. It's us together, gathered and then scattered. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. 
We all know what a pillar is, right? This ancient temple, they would, they would have these beautiful multiple feet thick of marble that would, that would support in front and be obvious to all. And that's the picture of the church. We'd be obvious, but we'd be supporters of God's truth in our world. God, this, this God who cares for us and wants our world to know the truth, that happens through us, the church family. And the church is a bulwark. That is, we're a support. We, we press into like a foundation, and other texts will say, use the word. God uses us in our culture to be a ground of truth, to not compromise on it when the culture is compromising, going 15 different directions, to find the truth in God's word and stand up for it and make it obvious and do that in a way that's compelling and winsome and grace-filled, but holds on to the truth. I believe people are hungry for that, that the church is the pillar and foundation, the support, the defense, the bulwark, the the buttress of truth, and the church recovers truth when it's lost in our world. And that's why all moral recovery in a nation always begins with the church, with the people of God who proclaim his infallible word and truth. That's us. It's our role. And what our living God is doing with his church has a sense of mystery to it, doesn't it? That's why Paul says it in verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. I know how often I fail, but isn't it mysterious that God would be so loving me that he would be at work in me and wanting to display himself in me and in you that we would become godly, that we would become holy, that he would change us to be like himself. And to help us with this, the Spirit of God led Paul to use in this last portion of the chapter a hymn or a creed for us to understand Jesus, for us to see him as he is. And here's what the hymn says. He was manifested in the flesh, or we knew him, because he became human. John puts it this way in John 1:14, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one only begotten of the Father. This is Christ on display in the earth when he became flesh. And the next phrase says, he was vindicated by the Spirit. It speaks to the fact that our Lord was crucified and yet rose again. Just as he said, he told people he would rise from the dead three days later, and he did that. And so he was vindicated. He was proved true. Paul says in Romans 1, 3 through 4, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how he was vindicated. The Spirit of God used the resurrection proof that no one else could do this. So we ought to follow the Lord and we ought to embrace him and place our faith in him. And because of our Lord's perfect and sinful life, death could not keep him. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was risen from the dead. Death does not have claim over him, and it does not have claim over you, and it certainly does not have claim over the church. The next line in this hymn is seen by angels, which speaks, I think, to the whole arc of Jesus' life. Remember, at his birth, angels were singing at his birth. And when he was tempted, they were there, present, supporting him. And when he went to the cross, they were there. And when he rose from the dead, they were announcing his birth. Angels were throughout the ark of him, and they were there at the ascension when he was taken up. 
all of heaven witnessed his wonders, and they know him to be true. And the hymn affirms that Jesus was made flesh, was raised from the dead, and then ascended to the Father. These amazing works that are central to our faith, that the same God who is alive and at work doing that is alive at work in the church, in the family of God today. Now turn your attention to the second verse of the hymn. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. While Jesus was taking on flesh and becoming a man, and that was done solely by God, he uses the church of all things, the family, that we would declare it and proclaim it in the world by being who we are called to be. Whether that might be at work or school or serving, wherever we might be. God can use us, and he wants to use us to proclaim it through our life. He wants people to see Christ on display in us, whether we're on vacation or hard at work or at home, wherever we might be. So the gospel is proclaimed by the church, and then the Holy Spirit moves men and women to believe. It's his job. It's not mine, right, to convince people. God's Spirit moves people to belief and in faith. It was his death that purchased men and women for God and brought people and still is bringing people into the family of faith. We have been made his children and Jesus is proved true. And then there's a final line taken up in glory that speaks about him being glorified, him being honored and his ascension. So the point of Paul's reference here is that God works through the church to accomplish his end which is to bring glory to the Son. It's a mysterious and a fascinating work that only he could pull off, and he's pulling it off in this family, in this household of the living God. So what do we do with all that really great truth in this chapter? First, I believe we're to become all that he's called us to be, not to look at other people and to see if they've measured up, but see how he's working inside of us and seek that he would change our character And to know this, that we are to be the church, the family of God, committed to live with character and to proclaim Christ. That's who we are together, living with character and proclaiming Christ. And we together are to display the greatness and glory of Jesus, our Savior. That's what this family is all about. Let me pray with you if I could. Father, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you've, you've made us to be a family. Thank you that you've raised the bar on how we behave and how we act. That character does really matter. Not just other people's characters, but all of our character matters. And that you, by your grace, would be transforming us, shaping us individually and together as a family to be people who can proclaim the truth and stand for the truth in our confused culture. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We're dependent fully on it so that we might be your people. We might be your church and people might come to you because of it. Christ's name we pray and all God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. 
Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.